With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this Friday follow-up episode of Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. And before we get started today, we want to get a couple of housekeeping things out of the way. For starters, let's talk about this new badass intro we have. We went ahead and dropped the intro into last week's episodes, but didn't really say anything about it, and that's because we didn't have it yet when we pre-recorded those. But we wanted to officially announce today that Shane Yoder, who's the man who's been making all of the music for the show, created that intro, and I think he did a pretty awesome job. And I'll admit, it was a little tough for me up front because it almost feels kind of, well, douchey. Yeah, that seems about right. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's just hearing my voice at the beginning like that with all the echoes and the effects put on it seems a little bit over the top, but I actually love what Shane did with that. He took sound bites from old episodes and asked me to re-record voiceovers for them and then drop them into that custom track that Shane wrote and composed. But what I love about it is the fact that the new intro captures what it is that we do. As it says, I'm merely a mouthpiece for all of you. And what we're doing here is making an incredible difference with everyone working together and contributing all of our different skill sets and areas of expertise. We are actually making a difference not only in the lives of Edward Eights and Kenny Snow and Carrie Cook and Anan Syed, but we're making leaps towards reforming our criminal justice system. So I wanted to give a big shout out to Shane. I think he did an awesome job in the new intro. And to answer the questions on social media, yes, the new intro song is here to stay. And also along the lines of housekeeping, you may or may not have heard at the beginning of this episode, I don't know if it was dropped in or not, but our partners at Audioboom, and they are hosts and they're also the people that sell the advertisement for the show, have recommended to us to let them drop in actual 30-second commercials at the very beginning and the very end of the show each week. These aren't live reads, they're very short, but it's another way to generate some revenue to help fund what we're doing here. As you all know, the process of working on these cases gets very expensive, and we're going to be launching a new case here in just a couple of weeks. That case is also out of Texas, and then there's a third case that we're working on that'll take on after that that is also out of Texas. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in Texas, which means a lot of travel expenses and things of that nature. 
So long story short, I just didn't want to surprise you all when you turn on the episode and you hear a quick commercial before the show starts. I did tell the people at Audio Boom that I would not agree to put any of those ads in the middle of the episode, only at the very beginning and the very end. And lastly, we wanted to address why there's only going to be two calls in the second segment of today's episode. And that is because we had some severe technical difficulties last night when we were taking the calls. Well, some technical difficulties and some human error. Right. To put it mildly, last night was a cluster when we were trying to take the calls. But no big deal. We had a ton of emails and social media this week. So we're going to start off today's show with a little bit longer segment than normal, answering questions that were sent in print that didn't involve any technical difficulties. All right. So let's get started. Okay, Bob, we're going to start with email. This first email comes from Patty. Patty writes, It seems like Elnora and Leonard's brother had a relationship, perhaps more than just friends. Elnora tells her friend on the phone the night of the murder it is Edward because she doesn't want her to know that Leonard's brother is there. Leonard shows up, catches them in the beginning or the middle of a sexual interaction, and kills her. Perhaps that is why he kept saying in the interview, Are you sure she didn't have sex? He thought that is what was going on between Elnora and his brother. He then makes up a story about his brother driving by and seeing the police, etc. I think something is hinky with the relationship between Elnora and the brother. The whole coming home from church thing does not add up. All right, thank you, Patty, for that email. And it's an interesting theory. I have found out a little bit more about Leonard's brother since we last talked about him. For starters, it appears, based on some information that a couple of listeners sent me, that Leonard's brother Michael was actually a pastor. Knowing that, a lot of what we know about him starts to make a little bit more sense. For starters, the trip home at midnight on Friday night. I'm a lot more inclined to accept the fact that maybe he actually was coming home from church at midnight on a Friday night, knowing that he was actually the pastor of the church. Now, that doesn't mean just a congregation member wouldn't be coming home that late, but you're right, it does seem a little hinky, or at the very least, odd. And also him being the pastor may help to explain a little bit the relationship between him and Elnora. It could be possible that she was having a rough time with the breakup and he was talking to her, counseling her. We just don't know. All we can really do is speculate. But I do think that it's important to throw into the context that Michael was actually the pastor of a church at the time. And I don't mean by that that someone being a pastor of a church makes them unable to commit a crime. I don't mean that at all. But it just may help to explain the reasons why some certain things happened. Regarding the relationship between Elnora and Michael, again, we would just have to speculate here. Do I think it's completely out of the question that Elnora was actually sitting talking to Michael and didn't want Kubi to know? No, I certainly don't think that's out of the question. At this point, and we have some new information that we'll be talking about next week, I'm more positive than ever that Ed was not at Elnora's trailer when Kubia called that night. I've also always been pretty positive that Kubia wasn't lying about that. So we have three people here involved in this circumstance. We have Ed, who says he wasn't there, Kubia, that says that Elnora says that he was there, and then we have Elnora herself. I've said this before, and again, now I'm even more inclined to believe that the most likely scenario that the person who wasn't telling the truth in that situation was probably Elnora. And I think that one of the reasons why that might be is because she didn't want Kubia to know who it was she was actually sitting there with. But again, that's just a theory. But furthermore, regarding Michael being in the trailer and Leonard coming in and interrupting them, that theory is not completely implausible, but it does have a few flaws. 
And the biggest flaw is that I am at this point pretty darn convinced that there was a female in the trailer that night. We have the fingernail chip that was found on Elmora's buttocks. We have the fingernail scratches in the middle of her back. Now, neither of those prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a woman there, but I do think that it is the most likely scenario that there were two people in the trailer that night besides Elnora and that one of them was female. Thanks for the email, Patty. All right, Bob, we've got another email here from Brian Hickey. Brian writes to us, Bob and Mike, have you considered Leonard Mosley's statements that he didn't have an extra set of work clothes when reviewing Dr. Booker's blood spatter testimony? If involved in the crime, Mosley's statements seem to be attempts to cover up certain elements of the crime. One that always seemed peculiar to me was that he didn't have work clothes for the following day and as a result couldn't go to Elnora's that night. While there's every indication that he was there, I'm wondering if his extra work clothes were bloodstained. Everything he says seems fishy to me, or much too convenient to deflect attention from him. I'm wondering if the statements regarding his clothes are another half-truth. Okay, thanks for the email, Brian. And it is possible that it is what you called, quote, a half-truth. For starters, like you said, every indication at this point is that Leonard actually did go there that night. Whether he's the one that killed Elnora or not, at this point I find it extremely unlikely that he wasn't at least there. So when we look at his story about not having clothes for work the next day, we have a few different scenarios as to where that might have come from. For starters, remember that originally, when Leonard was interviewed by the police, he did not tell them that he was supposed to go over there that night, nor did he mention that he typically goes over there on Thursdays. So it's possible that when Tim Lowndes, months later, confronted Leonard about the fact that he usually goes over there on Thursdays, and possibly even mentioned the answering machine tape, that Leonard was scrambling to come up with a reason as to why he didn't go that night. And since his story was that there was no issue between Angela and Elnora, he really had no excuse as to why he would blow her off that night. And it's possible that the best story that he could come up with was the work clothes story. But another option is, and it's something that I think I noted months ago, is that in Angela Walker's testimony at the second trial, she was asked what Leonard was wearing when he came home late that night. So if we're looking at a scenario where Leonard possibly was involved, but Angela wasn't, her testimony becomes a little more significant. When she was asked what Leonard was wearing when he came home, she described him as coming home in work clothes. But remember that Leonard has always said that he always goes home in street clothes. So the issue that night would have been that his work clothes were dirty, he changed into his street clothes, and didn't have another pair of work clothes for the next morning. Which again, we all know that that doesn't make sense either because he only lived about 8 minutes away and didn't have to be to work until 11.30 the next morning. But setting all of that aside, the fact that Angela said that he came home in work clothes that night could be significant if Angela wasn't involved. Because if that truly was the case, let's think about this scenario for a moment. And this is just a hypothesis. But imagine that Leonard did go over there that Thursday night. He planned on it and he actually went. And also, as he stated at two different points during his testimony that he did know that he needed to work on Friday because they had told him earlier in the week. So he did have an extra change of work clothes with him. So in this scenario, Leonard gets off at 11 o'clock at night, takes a shower, changes into his street clothes, and goes to Elnora's like normal. Then the assault and the murder happens, and now his street clothes are covered with blood. He doesn't want to go home wearing bloody clothes, so his only option would be to change into the clean work clothes that he had brought with him to change into the next morning. 
And therefore, when he gets home to Angela that night, rather than wearing his street clothes as he says he leaves work in every day, he shows up at home wearing work clothes. Now again, that's just a theory, just a hypothesis, but that is one scenario that I've considered about Leonard. And of course, that would be assuming that Angela was not involved, and she was merely on the stand telling the truth about when he got home that night. Thanks for the email, Brian. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. This next email is from Sam. Sam writes Hi. Don't know if this helps, and I don't know if those TV shows had ads in them, but the movie before Unsolved Mysteries goes for 91 minutes, and then each Unsolved Mysteries runtime was 44 minutes. This is without any ad breaks. All right, thank you for bringing this up, Sam, and several other listeners did too. So in the last week, we have done a lot of research into this Unsolved Mysteries schedule. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. We have dug deep into the weeds on this. So let me just take a few minutes to break down what we know so far. The movie that came on before Unsolved Mysteries, The Night Elnora Was Killed, did have a runtime of just over an hour and a half, but that's without commercials. We did further checking and found out that when it ran with commercials, it ran for two hours. Now that movie, it's one of the Spencer for Hire movies, started at 8 o'clock that night, which means it ended at 10 which should mean that Unsolved Mysteries started right afterwards at 10, or right around there. But here's where we start to run into problems. This does contradict my theory that Unsolved Mysteries actually started at 9.30, which would mean that the second Unsolved Mysteries started at 10.30. So this was a little bit of a blow. As it turns out, it did start at 10. So we have to move the timeline back up to where we originally had it, which was with Edward arriving at Monica's apartment at 11.20. But as we continue to dig, with the help of several listeners, we've discovered that it's quite possible that there was no second episode of Unsolved Mysteries that night. And these are the reasons why. The TV Guide shows that Unsolved Mysteries started at 10 o'clock that night, and that a second episode started at 11 o'clock. But here's the issue. The first Unsolved Mysteries shows a one-hour time block, which makes sense, because as Sam pointed out, it has a runtime of just over 40 minutes, And with commercials, that's a one-hour time block. But the second episode only has a 30-minute time block. Further research has shown there has never been a 30-minute episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And we know that that second show could not have run any longer than 11.30 because 30-something began at 11.30, which also had a one-hour runtime. So now we're left with pretty proof positive that the Spencer movie ended at 10, Unsolved Mysteries started shortly after, and 30-something began somewhere around 11.30. 
Now, there was one or two 90-minute episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. They were specials. So it's possible that that was one 90-minute episode, but there was no way to know for sure. But further analysis of the TV guide led listener Mike Bond to contact me and start doing some research of his own to figure out what those code numbers are that appear after every entry in the TV guide. As it turns out, those numbers are what are known as VCR plus codes. And to be honest with you, I still don't understand exactly how they're used, but there was some sort of a machine that you could plug into your VCR, from the best I understand, where you could enter those codes in and your VCR would automatically record those episodes. Mike was able to put me in contact with a guy named Kurt, who actually still owns one of these devices. Kurt jumped on board and continued to dig deeper into the VCR Plus codes for Unsolved Mysteries that night, and he was able to point out to me something that should have been staring us in the face all along. Even though the Unsolved Mysteries episode that night spans across two time slots, the 10 to 11 and the 11 to 11.30, there's only one code. And according to him, from the best we can interpret that TV guide, that means there was only one episode of Unsolved Mysteries on that night, not two. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is huge. Because if you remember Marsha Bush's original written statement and her testimony at the first trial, she said that she knew it was 11.20 when Ed arrived because she had watched one episode of Unsolved Mysteries and started the second episode and realized it was a rerun, and she had already seen it, and she shut it off and went to bed. That's how she knew it had to have been 11.20 when he arrived. But if we are right about this, and there was only one episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and it started at 10 o'clock, then that doesn't just move our timeline up 30 minutes, it moves our timeline up an entire hour. Which would mean Ed arrived at their house, not at 11.20, not at 10.50, but at 10.20. And since it is a 20-minute drive from Elnora's trailer to Monica's apartment, that would have to mean that Ed left Elnora's trailer no later than 10 o'clock at night. And since in Kubia's original interview, she said that when she called Elnora, it had to have been between 10 and 10.15 at night, this new information, if it pans out, would not only make it impossible for Ed to have been there when Kubia called, but it would also make it impossible for Ed to have killed Elnora because she was still alive when Kubia called when we know Ed was on his way to Monica's apartment. Also remember that in Monica's first statement to the police, when Deputy Cheney stepped out to call her that night, she told Cheney that Ed arrived somewhere between 10 and 11, which would be consistent with what this new evidence seems to be pointing towards. Further examination of the TV guide shows us that there was actually two episodes of Unsolved Mysteries on that night. But the problem is, they weren't at 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, they were at 6 o'clock and 10 o'clock. With all of the information we have at hand right now, I believe the most likely scenario of what actually happened that night is that Marsha Bush watched the first episode of Unsolved Mysteries at 6 o'clock that evening. At 10 o'clock, a second episode came on, she started to watch, realized it was a rerun, and went to bed, and Ed arrived shortly thereafter. And if this proves to be true, this will be further proof positive that there was no way for Edward Eights to have killed Elnora Griffin. And we are well on our way to finding out the truth. Some of you may not realize exactly how wide the arms of the Truth and Justice Army reaches. 
But in order to figure this out, I had to reach out to a very well-known member of the Truth and Justice Army, a man that has supported us from the very beginning, and that is Mr. John Cryer. John Cryer's wife, Lisa Joyner, stars in a television show on the Lifetime Network called Find My Family. I reached out to John yesterday and asked him if Lisa had connections at Lifetime that could prove to us once and for all exactly what time Unsolved Mysteries aired on July 22, 1993. Within a few hours, John had word back from Lifetime, and as far as we know right now, they do have that information, and they have said that they will try to get it to him today. So unfortunately, you won't hear about it until next week, but keep your fingers crossed that Lifetime gets us accurate information, and we will finally know once and for all what time that show aired. I know that's a long answer to a very short question, but thank you so much, Sam, for bringing up the topic. Okay, Bob, this next email is from Kelly Carvino. Kelly writes, Okay, I agree that it seems like Leonard did eat that night. I wanted to ask you this at the meetup, but couldn't hear the other questions, so I didn't want to duplicate. Now, I'm thinking if he did eat dinner, it seems more relevant. On the episode, I think there were two mentions of a paper towel or napkin found with what appeared to be the same food substance. I immediately thought it sounded like a napkin that Leonard, or whomever, must have used while eating. Is there anything to that? Was that napkin saved? If so, could DNA be tested? There are probably better sources to test for DNA, but thought this might be more time-stamped for Leonard as he was often there. If two people were there, one murdered Elnora, and that person's DNA was to be identified in closer proximity to her body or on her person, DNA on the napkin could possibly place a second person at the scene that exact night. Crazy? Okay, Kelly, that's actually a really good question. And the short answer is, yes, according to the inventory that we have from the Smith County Sheriff's Department, the paper towels that were recovered on the scene that night are still stored in evidence. I don't recall that the report said that there was a similar food substance on the paper towels, but I believe they said that they were stained, and there was one on the counter and one in the trash can. And both of these two items would go a long way to putting someone on the scene if we are able to identify DNA from them, which that's the beauty of this case right now. All of the forensic testing that was done in Ed's case was done in 1993, before there was even such a thing as skin cell or touch DNA. With that being the case now, if the killer, whether it be Leonard or anyone, did come over and wipe their mouth with that paper towel, their DNA is on it. And like I said, as far as we know, we still have access to those paper towels. And so therefore, yes, these are items that we will be including in our request to be tested for DNA. And if Leonard's DNA is found on one of those paper towels, that's going to mean a lot of trouble for Leonard. Because Leonard has stated emphatically to the police, to Tim Lowndes, and at trial that he had not been to Elnora's trailer in two weeks. All right, Bob, now we're going to move into Facebook. Nicole Marie Davis posts, were there any footprints or tracks photographed outside of the trailer? Well, that's a good question, because according to Ed, there were. From the first time I spoke with Ed about the case, he told me that in the office of his attorneys, they had showed him all the crime scene photos, and there was a photo of a footprint in the dirt outside of the car. Ever since then, I've wondered, do those photos actually exist? Ed seems to remember that they were, but his memory may not be exactly accurate. We do know that the defense never raised the issue of the footprints at trial, and neither did the prosecution, 
And furthermore, there was nothing noted in Waller's report or in the open records request that we just received. So as far as we know on the record, there are no photos of footprints from the scene. But as we know with everything else, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Okay, Bob, moving into Twitter. This first tweet comes from Mrs. Wiz. Grand Slam episode. Is it proof of ineffective assistance of counsel? Why didn't defense use Monica's interview? Okay, Mrs. Wiz, that's a really good question. And actually what we have here is a catch-22 scenario. So we don't know if Ed's attorneys actually had access to that interview. But that leaves us in kind of a win-win situation. Because either the prosecution never turned that over to the defense, which would be a Brady violation, but honestly, I don't believe that's the case, because Smith County had an open file policy, meaning that if that transcript was in the prosecutor's file, the defense had the opportunity to go view it anytime they wanted to, which kind of let the prosecution off the hook for any Brady violation. But the other side of the coin here is, if they did have access to it, it's not a Brady violation but then it is certainly ineffective assistance of counsel. If the defense did have Monica's original statement that clearly and accurately, down to every detail, described the clothes that Ed was wearing the night that he was at her apartment and was still wearing the night he interviewed with Huckel, and they didn't use it or didn't catch it, that definitely would be ineffective assistance of counsel. All right, Bob, this next tweet comes from Tina Zatoli. Okay. She tweets, Another great episode. How much of this will likely make it into an actual innocence claim? All of it. Every single thing we found will go in the claim. Now, with that being said, that does not necessarily mean that a judge will allow all of it in. But we have, as I've stated in a previous episode, a massive case of actual innocence here. The state's case was weak to begin with. They only had a few points that indicated in a circumstantial or speculative way, that Ed committed this crime. And over the last year, we have been able to completely destroy every single point that the prosecution had. And so all of that will be included in the claim of actual innocence, along with any forensic testing that we have done between now and then. Now, a judge does have the final say-so as to what can be included and what can't be. So we don't know at this point what all will actually play in a habeas hearing but it's my understanding that Allison will be filing claims on everything that we found. Hey, Bob, I just want to stop you right there. I have a question for you. Okay. Who tests the DNA that is preserved in evidence? So typically the way this works is we know what evidence is there, so we file a motion requesting for it to be tested. If that motion is approved by a judge, then we would take the evidence and we would fund the testing. In this particular instance, Matt Bingham has told Allison Clayton, as you heard last week on the follow-up episode from the live recording, when Allison met with Bingham, he told her that he's not going to oppose her on any testing and that he would even pay for it. He, meaning Smith County, would pay for it. So in this instance, if he stays true to his word, it would actually be the prosecution that would be funding and having the evidence tested. But really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If it's tested, it's tested, and whatever the results are, that's what they are. Okay, so what if hypothetically, let's say there's five items tested, four of which come back in support of Ed being innocent, and one doesn't. Now, we don't really have to talk about specifically what that could be or couldn't be, but I'm using it in a hypothetical context here to to try and get my question through to you. It'll all depend on what that means. I mean, we're literally going in front of a judge and claiming to them that based on all of these facts, we believe that Edward Ates is actually innocent. 
So what you're saying is, say we tested five items, and four of them come back exculpatory, and one of them comes back inculpatory. Now, inculpatory doesn't mean that Ed committed the murder. It just means that there's something that would indicate that maybe he did do it. So it really depends what that evidence is. So, for example, if we tested the DNA underneath Elnora's fingernails, and that DNA came back to be Ed's, well, that would not... Well, that would not only be a case killer, but that would be an indication to all of us that Ed actually did kill her. There's no reason for Ed's DNA, there's no reason for anyone's DNA, actually, to be underneath Elnora's fingernail other than the person that actually killed her. But let's say, for example, the scraping under Elnora's fingernail comes back to be someone else's DNA, indicating that person is the killer. But maybe there's a fingerprint that was never tested for some reason that was found on the door. That would be inculpatory towards Ed. But in that situation, when we're making our case, we still have a clear claim of actual innocence. We know that Ed has been in that trailer before. He's been there to help Elnora with the bees, and he'd done a lot of work on her yard and worked on her car. So just the fact that Ed's fingerprint was on that door, which by the way, it's not. This is all hypothetical. We know for a fact there are none of his fingerprints there. But as an example, in that case, even though there is a piece of inculpatory evidence that we find, in this scenario being his fingerprint on the door, that doesn't outweigh the fact that the killer's DNA was found under her fingernails, and we know who that is. So it's not just as a matter of a numbers game. It's literally what does the evidence mean for the case. That make sense? Absolutely. Thank you for clearing that up, Chief. Yep. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, this tweet comes from Philip Jones. He tweets, Blood and feces on the killer, but not in the car. Who moved the car? Had to be two people, one which managed to stay away. That's a really good point, Philip. And the fact that no feces or blood was found in the car certainly is another indication that there were two people on the crime scene. The killer, I believe, would most definitely be covered in blood. And according to the state's theory of the case, the killer also stepped in feces in the bedroom. So the fact that someone was able to get into Elnora's car and move it without getting any feces or blood in the car is a clear indication that there was a second person involved. However, one thing that we do have to consider is that no one was ever in the car. It's possible that if the killer had the keys, they just reached in, put the car into neutral, and pushed it forward. Which, to be honest, I think is probably the most likely scenario. Because the killer isn't wanting to draw attention to themselves at 11 o'clock at night or midnight or 1 in the morning or whenever this was by starting the car. So I think it's more likely that they use the keys to put the car into neutral and push it forward. Unfortunately for the state, that really ruins their theory about Ed driving the car to Monica's apartment, which I believe that we have already completely dismantled last week. Okay, and we've got one last tweet here. This one comes from Kay Hack. I'm confused. Multiple references to blood spatter on wall from possible stubbed toe, but also so much interest in Ed's shoe. How could this toe have bled to the point of spraying on the wall if he had shoes on? Okay, so this is another one of those nasty catch-22s for the state. So in order for the state to make their case against Ed, Ed had to have had feces on his shoes. And since all of the feces on the crime scene was found underneath the comforter from the bed, that means that the feces was stepped in during the struggle. 
because the comforter would have been ripped off the bed and fallen over the top of the feces before the struggle left the bedroom and went out to where Elnora was killed. But this creates some serious problems for the state, because if the scraping off of Ed's shoe has to be feces, which is the case they made at trial, that means that he had to have been wearing shoes when Elnora's throat was slit, which creates a huge problem because there should have been blood all over those shoes, and forensic testing has proved there wasn't a drop of blood on them. So if they try to get away from that argument by saying, well, he could have been barefoot when he killed her, and that's why there's no blood on the shoes, then they lose their argument about the feces. Because if he wasn't wearing his shoes during the struggle and the murder, and that's why there's no blood on the shoes, then it also would be impossible for him to have the feces on the bottom of his shoes because the footprint and the feces is in the bedroom underneath the comforter that occurred at the beginning of the struggle. So it's a complete catch-22 for the state. As far as my theory about the blood on the wall possibly coming from someone stubbing their toe, again, I'll point out that is just a theory, but it doesn't hurt our case in any way. Because again, remember, my theory is that there were two people on the crime scene that night, which would mean there could be one person that had their shoes off, probably the person that was in the bedroom with Elnor at the beginning, and the second person that barged in and interrupted the encounter would still have their shoes on, leaving the possibility wide open for only one out of the two killers to not be wearing any shoes. But again, that was just one scenario that I think could possibly explain the blood spatter on the wall. All right, Chief, that's all we've got for social media, so let's move into our calls. Okay, sounds good. And before we do that, again, remember, there's only two calls here because of the technical difficulties. And actually, for your listening pleasure, I think we should drop in like one minute of what was going on during the calls last night. Yeah, like kind of a blooper reel. Yeah. Exactly. So we're going to do that. So right now, here's one minute of what was happening last night when we were trying to take phone calls. And then we'll get into the two calls that we have. Sounds good. All right. First call of the night. Uh, finally, as I was whining shamelessly on Twitter because no one was, um, So here's the thing, Kim, uh, and everybody listening mm-hmm. to this. Uh, I forgot to shut off my call waiting before I did this. So I'm going to try to... Limit. Um, unknown caller. Oh, shit. Oh, press no. One. To send a voicemail, press two. Oh, no. To accept, press one. Okay, to I send a voicemail, press two. Uh, hello? <laughs> Truth and justice? Hi. <laughs> Who's this? <laughs> this is Lisa. Lisa, where are you calling from? <laughs> I'm calling from New York. Hi, Lisa. Hang on a second. Kim, are you still on the air? <laughs> Oh, uh, Lisa, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I'm glad you called. I've just just made a terrible mistake. Oh, here we go again. Uh, I forgot to shut my. I had a hard time getting through. Yeah, I don't know. This has been a. Uh, uh, pardon my French. This has been a clusterfuck. Um, so yes. I, I first forgot to turn off the do not disturb, and now I forgot to shut off my call waiting. Uh, there we go. Okay, and now I pushed the right button, and I and I sadly just hung up on another listener uh, while you called. So let's, uh, what do you want to talk about, Kim? And it didn't end with just that. Because of the other snafus we had, Mike normally screens the calls to make sure there's not a lot of background noise happening when someone calls in. And since he wasn't able to do that, we also got this. Right, I used to sit in the uh, in the pantry uh, with the phone because we didn't have a cordless phone, so in our kitchen we had a phone that had like a 20-foot-long cord that I would wrap around and, and sit in the closet and talk to my girlfriend. Yeah, my mom had one. So when we went to visit her, 
Okay, hey, Lisa. I mean, I, Lisa, know, Lisa, I don't want I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, Lisa. I got another call no, coming in, and, there, and it sounds like okay. you got a, a, lot of, a lot of stuff going on in the background. So I'm going to switch over yeah, to the next one. I got a bunch of hungry kids here. Right. You go feed those kids. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Lisa. Bye. Okay, thank you. Bye. Damn it, missed the call. Okay, quick. I got you. <laughs> Did you hear the plate fall? Yes, I heard the plate fall. I hung up on poor Kim. Ah! <laughs> what a cluster. F I believe that is the absolute best way to describe what was happening last night. But let's go ahead and get into these two calls that we did receive. This first call you're going to hear is actually from Sarah Mueller, one of our transcriptionists. Okay, we had some severe technical difficulties, so if you were one of the first two callers, which was, I think, Kim from Michigan and Lisa from... Don't remember, because there was chaos happening. We had some serious technical difficulties, so if either one of you are listening and wondering where your call went, we apologize. Uh, there was three things that went wrong, and I want to blame them all on Mike, and unfortunately, every single one of them is my fault. Well, at least two out of the three are. One out of the three. One out of three. Were two out of three your fault? Uh, well, the the two open cords. cords here were definitely my fault. Right. So the thing that we really want to pay attention to is the fact that uh, Mike didn't have, uh, he had some unplugged cords on the table. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and take calls. Let's, Let's take the take calls. take some calls, Chief. F*** it. All right. I am finally and officially, I think with all technical difficulties worked out, on the air now with one of our transcriptionists, and I believe we have now heard from all three of our amazing transcription <laughs> team, this is Sarah Mueller. How you doing, Sarah? I am great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Can you remind me again of where you reside? I live in Cleveland, Ohio, in a.k.a. the best city in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Until the Cubs beat them last year. Yeah, oh, well, uh, that was last year. That's okay. The Cavs won, so I mean. Uh, yeah, but who, who likes basketball? everybody in Cleveland now. <laughs> right, I'm sure. Okay, so Mike tells me that, Sarah, you have a question about fingernail clippings. I don't know if it's more of a question. It's more of like a theory, and I actually thought of it today. So I know that there was, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a few like fingernail clippings or fingernail polish parts like on found on Elnora, and I was thinking about that today, and as I was, actually as I was vacuuming and I'm cleaning stuff up, I noticed a bunch of like my fingernail or like fingernail polish clippings on the floor. And I realize that I do that when I get nervous or when I'm watching TV or just like, I just like girls do it. They just pick at their fingernails and, you know, maybe they're not clean and they don't throw them on the floor. So maybe those didn't come from Angela and they came from Elnora while she was having a struggle with whoever she was having the struggle with. It could have been her own. I don't know if she owns that color or anything like that, but it was just kind of a theory that I had while I was sitting there watching TV. Right. Well, first of all, I want to state that that's disgusting, Sarah, and you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Listen, if a girl says that she doesn't do that, she is lying to you. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's it's very possible. What what was noted was that the fingernail clippings that they are that they found did not appear to be ripped. They were cut. Oh. Um, so oh. so they they did appear to be from uh, from like Elnora cutting her fingernails. Uh, but 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 see, there was some. Oh, okay. There was one found on the bed. There was a couple found on the floor. The one of note was there was one found on her body. It was on her on her buttocks, actually. And it wasn't a clipping. It was a chip of nail polish, right? Uh, it was like right on her. There's a photo of it. It's on her on her buttock uh, as she's as she's laying mm -hmm. on the ground. And it did not match the color that she was had on her fingers at that time. Now, 
that does not, of course, uh, believe it or not, not the most thorough investigation on, into this. Uh, but we don't know because what you just said was, did she own that color? That would have been a great thing to do is to go, you know, pull, yeah. pull all of her different fingernail polishes that she has and see if they match. Uh, but but the fact that it's a chip and that it was on her her person on her on her buttock could be significant, not necessarily, but it could be. And, and this is why, from the best that we can tell, it appears that Elnora was running away because her back was to the bedroom where we know the struggle began, and she fell mm-hmm. forward. And it doesn't appear there's not evidence of her rolling around the floor or anything like that based on the blood patterns. So it appears that she was running forward, fell forward landed on her front side. So the idea of her like picking that up off the floor doesn't seem like a real possibility. Could have been kicked up yeah. off the floor, especially where it was located. I mean, I don't want to, re- I'm trying to figure out how to delicately describe it and still respect her. And I can't, so I'm just going to say, trust me. Yeah, no, you're, you're good. That's fine. That's yeah. Fine. Uh, where it was at, it's, it's, it seems to me very unlikely that you would have picked that up off the floor because she didn't have any other debris from the floor on her, her back of her body. There was just this one. Okay, that's what that's what I was going to ask too. Then, because if it was just that one thing, then my theory makes no sense. But it, you know, if it was if it's one thing, I get that. That makes sense. Yep. So, uh, so yeah. I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But again, this this one was not the one that was on her body was not a clipping. It was a chip, like off the the top of your fingernail polish uh, that was mm-hmm. on there, and 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 that's the one that seems to be the most important to me. But. It, it, we still don't really know, you know, could there be DNA off of it? Could there not be? We don't know. Yeah. I know it's not like a huge major detail, but it's like one thing that has like kind of stuck with me. I'm not sure why, because there's like a million other more important things maybe, but like that little fingernail chip just kind of, you know, it's just kind of stuck in my mind. <laughs> well, you know, that that's that's true. But to remember that, you know, like I, like I always say, the devil's in the details, like the reason we've gotten where we've gotten so far. So a lot of the things that we've discovered are, are not enough to prove anything. But it's mm-hmm. all of these details together that are what makes a difference. So just because that yeah. might be one small detail that independently might not mean much, when we put that together with all of the other details, all of a sudden now it starts to mean the world. So so don't ever think that just because it's a little detail, it doesn't matter. That's why a crowdsource investigation works, because we have so many mm-hmm. people looking at every detail from every point of view and every perspective and every walk of life and every field of expertise. And that's what's going to make the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can I just say that I love being on the transcription team and transcribing these old episodes. It's actually been a lot of fun. I mean, sometimes it takes a really long time to get through some of these episodes, but it's really fun to kind of go back. And I'm doing some right now, some of the earlier episodes from Ed's case. and based on all those things we've discovered now, we're talking about things in those episodes and we're like, well, we have some questions about this. And I'm like, oh, we actually answered this already. So it's, it's oh, nice wow, that's to awesome. see how far we've gone since the beginning. And well, it's, it's really great. And I really like it. And I tell everybody every chance that I get that I do this and they think <laughs> it's really cool. So it, I guess it, that makes me cool too. <laughs> it does. It, do, it does definitely make you cool by proxy because you're this close to Mike right now. <laughs> and Mike is the coolest cat in the on the show. Uh, but no, we really, we, we can't express enough. I, I think this is the first time I've spoken to you in person and I got to talk to Sarah Hoyt mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago and, and we really, really appreciate what you're doing. And, and Ed thoroughly appreciates it. I mean, it, you know, he, he's a guy, he loves to read anyway and being able to read about this mm-hmm. is just, it just means the world to him. Are you by any chance transcribing yeah. this particular episode? 
No, no, I don't think so. I'm working on some of the backer, like the back episodes, like the 220s right now. So I don't think I'll be doing this one. But I hope I didn't say anything that was too complicated for Sarah or Des. I think I, I think I was okay. <laughs> oh, I was, I was just going to give you the opportunity to pay him back for what uh, Sarah Hoyt did last week. But if you want to be nice to him, you can be nice <laughs> okay. to him. I can't even think of any crazy words off the top of my head right now. But <laughs> All <I'll> right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for calling, Sarah, and thank you again for all of your hard work. No problem. You take care. Yep. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. I am now on the air with a big-time celebrity calling from Hollywood. It says all over my screen, everyone that lives in Hollywood is a celebrity, and so I have David on the phone. So, uh, David, what, what TV show are you acting in? Or Days of Our Lives? Are you in a soap opera? What do you do? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I've actually uh, grew up uh, looking like Mowgli, to be honest. So the Jungle oh. Book is probably close swing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and actually, Mike says you're, you're actually a nursing student in North Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's correct. Going to a school called West Coast University. And um, I'm in my second year, and uh, I should be finishing up in about a year and a half. But, you know, I just really wanted to let you know that during my first year, Definitely listen to the podcast, and I just really wanted to give praise to you and your team for you know not only just doing right by a lot of people, but um, just the courage that you, it took for you guys to, to see what you guys are doing right now. And even over here in, in Hollywood land, you know, it, it uh, definitely pulls at the heart and the tears what you guys do, and really appreciate it. Well, thank you for that, David. And, and normally... Uh, for the listeners, we don't do these calls. We try to stick to content. But my, my screen from Mike literally says, David from North Hollywood just wants to give you praise. You're having a shitty night. Take the call. Uh, so this is perfect. We've been having all ki- <laughs> we're having all kinds of technical difficulties. So that's awesome. Thanks for calling in, David. And we really appreciate your your engagement and all of your support, too, as well. Uh, hey, it was such a pleasure just to speak with you, Bob. And uh, keep doing the great work, man. Great. You, too. Thanks, David. All right. Bye now. Bye. Okay, that's all we have for phone calls. We want to thank all of you for tuning in today. I think that even with our technical difficulties, we certainly covered a lot of ground today. And make sure that you tune in on Sunday for episode 252, where we're going to take you along with us on our journey to Texas last week. And make sure you call in next week, Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, for the recording of our Friday follow-up episode. But until then, see ya. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All of the music for the show was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And special thanks to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn, for transcribing the episodes every week and mailing them out to Ed and Kenny. And as we're approaching the end of Ed's case, where we're going to pass the baton on to his attorney, Allison Clayton, I want to throw out a big heartfelt thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support over the last year. The way it looks right now is that we will be wrapping up Ed's case with the Sunday episode on February 19th, and then we will be launching our new case on Sunday, February 26th. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.